Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. Before we get on our show here, I want to remind you about our upcoming Memphis Investment and Property Tour that will be on October 6th and October 7th. It's a Friday, Saturday. And this is a great event. If you can make it, by all means, get in touch with our investment counselors here. We are offering free tickets. The tickets are normally $450. And we would love to see you and maybe your spouse down there or your business partner. But what we are doing is hosting a unique event in Memphis, Tennessee, and it'll be a weekend of property tours, speakers, and networking mixed with a little Memphis culture. So not only will you see great investment properties, but the first full day is where we're bringing together speakers from all over to address various aspects of today's real estate investing. So it's going to be a breadth of information and topics, and we would love to have you down there and see what we have going on in that great market. So. Again, this is uh, October 6th and 7th. You can come in as early as uh, Thursday, October 5th. We have, I'm not sure if we have an event on Thursday, but we definitely have an event going on on Friday evening. It's a dinner and a networking mixer. And then, of course, Saturday is open-ended, Saturday evening, so we can do whatever we want to do, unless you want to fly out that night, but I think a lot of people are going to fly out on Sunday. So anyway, contact our office or send us an email through our website at noradarealestate.com and we'll tell you more about it. In the meantime, today's episode is about sheltering your rental income from taxes and maybe some other tax tips. When it comes to taxes, I pay my taxes. It's not my favorite thing to do, but it's something we just all have to come to grips with. But paying taxes just seems to be part of the American life now. And ever since the Income Tax Act of 1913, there's really no way around it. There's a lot of code in the tax code. And unfortunately, you have to pay your taxes for any types of income you make. But fortunately, the U.S. tax code has many, many rules that allow rental property owners to reduce their taxes and save money. So If you own property, it's a huge part of your tax strategy because it is the most tax-favored investment that you can get your hands on, that you can put your investment capital into. And the IRS rewards this type of behavior. So if you don't have property, you really should have some because the tax benefits are fantastic. I'm not a tax professional or a CPA, but I do know many people who are tax advisors and specialists in an area and the fact that they are in a niche that they deal with real estate investors that really helps in helping educate you through this podcast through articles and as well as clients because we can put you in touch with them to minimize your tax impact or defer that taxable impact or in some cases even eliminate completely and forever the tax impact of your income so with that our show today is about sheltering and reducing your rental income from taxes. And I have a great guest on who is a very, very sharp individual. And I will get to that here in just 30 seconds. So just stay tuned. Are you looking for a roadmap to financial freedom? If so, we have a solution for you. Narada Real Estate is offering a limited number of free strategy sessions to help you get out of the rat race. Learn how you can create wealth and build monthly passive income. To set up a time with one of our knowledgeable investment counselors, simply go to naradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. 
It's my pleasure to welcome Brandon Hall to the show. Brandon is the owner of The Real Estate CPA. He's a real estate investor and CPA specializing in providing business advice and creative tax strategies for real estate investors. Brandon's experience in the big four accounting firm and his personal investing experience allows him to provide unique advice to each of his clients. And he's an entrepreneur at heart who happens to be good at taxes. So Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Marco. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad to have you on. Everybody thinks about taxes and talks about taxes. And so I haven't done a show on income taxes and property taxes for a while. So I figured, you know what, it's about that time. So Brandon, why don't we start off by you uh, sharing with our listeners how you got into real estate investing? Oh, how I got into real estate. Okay. So I started my career off at PricewaterhouseCoopers as a big four uh, accountant, pursued my CPA and kind of looked at it and said, you know what, this isn't really something I want to do long term. So I immediately started trying to figure out how to get out of the corporate world, found Bigger Pockets, which is all about rental real estate and started asking a lot of questions there. And that ended up leading to me buying my first rental property, which was a three unit down in Hickory, North Carolina. So that's how I kind of got started, just standard W-2 path and just kind of exploring different real estate options. And so when you went to college or university, you were setting out to just be a CPA right from the get-go. It wasn't that you wanted to be a real estate investor at the time. Well, I double majored in finance and accounting. And through my finance degree, I actually took a couple real estate classes and really actually enjoyed the material, convinced my parents that real estate was an awesome way to invest and kind of watched them make some investments as my own little case study where I had zero risk involved. But after they found some success there and I kind of just realized, all right, real estate is definitely a key to wealth building. It's something that I want to explore later. I don't know a lot about it, but whenever I have the money, I'm definitely going to roll those funds into real estate. So I kind of looked at the W-2 job as more of a way to fund the real estate venture. And yeah, when I finally had the funds, it was like, okay, how do we actually do this real estate investing thing? It sounds great. It looks great, but I don't know anything about it. That's where I found bigger pockets and all those resources. Sure. Yeah. And W2 income is very important because you need that capital to invest in the real estate. So cash and credit allows you to build that portfolio. And sometimes people ask, should I go into real estate full time, quote unquote? And that usually means that they're leaving their job and they're planning to be a flipper or whatever they plan to be. But that's not a smart move because you need that income to qualify for financing. So that's a good bridge. And so I can see how you went from the W-2 position to starting your own business and then generating income from that and then investing in real estate. Yeah, yeah. On that note, actually, I just recently closed on a single family home down in Raleigh, North Carolina as a primary residence, not really as an investment. And it was very difficult to underwrite my self-employment income compared to the W-2 income. So I've bought two three-unit properties on W-2 income and it was a breeze. So yeah, that's definitely one thing to keep in mind if you are thinking about going that self-employed route and getting up, giving up that W-2 is it gets a lot tougher. Yeah, advice to investors. So Benjamin Franklin said, and I know many people have heard this, that in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. And so we're always looking for ways to not necessarily avoid death, but certainly reduce or eliminate taxes. So let's kind of start off with this very general overarching question that could be actually a specific question, and that is this. Is there an overall best practices strategy for real estate investors to shelter their rental income? Oh, good question. So overall best practices, I would just say you need to get into a really solid habit of documenting everything and keeping up-to-date financial statements. 
And I know that that's not a really sexy answer, but there's not a lot that we as CPAs can do if you don't have appropriate records in place. Now, sure, we can get into entity structuring. We can get into all the other sort of tax strategies that rental properties do produce, and they do produce a lot of different tax strategies. But the base level, the very first thing that we tell all of our clients as they onboard at our firm is you have to be awesome at documentation. And if you're not awesome at documentation, then we're just going to continuously talk about it over and over until you do get good at it so that we can move you into the actual strategies. So yeah, so I guess best practices, I would say download applications that help you track things like Mile IQ for mileage, Expensify for receipts, get those things working and rolling so that you don't miss a single receipt. And then get it all into a profit and loss statement, whether it be a simple Excel file profit and loss statement, or maybe you're using QuickBooks online. But the key is to have financial information readily available and the documents to support it. That's a great answer. But I also assume that that's really just the starting point, because once you have everything documented and all that data captured, now it's the CPA's job or your tax advisor's job to look at that information and strategize with you what the best way forward is in order to reduce or shelter or defer or eliminate your taxes. Would that be true? Absolutely. So we work with hundreds of real estate investors and we know profitability ratios, right? So we know, okay, if you have one rental property in this location, this is roughly how much it should be cash flowing. We know that if you have a multifamily property, your repair expenses should be more like 12% versus a single family at 5%, something like that. So when you are documenting your transactions and you have up-to-date financial statements, we can look at those financial statements and say, actually, looks like you're a little under here. Maybe it's on repairs. A classic one is meals and entertainment. People forget that they can deduct meals. So we're a little bit under on the meals. Do we have meals? Is that true? Are the financial statements true? Or are we just not recording these meals? And generally, it's just we're just not recording these. So Having up-to-date financial statements that are accurate and the supporting documentation to support those numbers, that's really the first step because then we'll go in with a critical eye and say, hey, based on what our other clients are doing, these are areas that we can improve on the documentation or areas that we're missing out. I like that. It's like a frame of reference. Exactly. Yeah. Benchmarking. Yeah. Okay. Good. So one thing I want to touch on here, which is a bit of a tangent question, is there are three types of deductions that I think a lot of real estate investors get confused. Maybe not a lot, but some. I mean, I understand them and they're very clear, but until you actually stop to think about it, it's not as clear as a lot of people think because a lot of people chalk maintenance and repairs into one category. And although it may be one line item, they're not the same thing. So can you just briefly explain the difference between maintenance, repairs, and capital expenses? Sure. So maintenance, think of maintenance, actually the IRS defines maintenance as something that is going to occur two times over a 10-year period. So replacing carpeting, that could be considered maintenance. Working on your HVAC unit to make sure that it doesn't go out, that's considered maintenance. So two times in a 10-year period. A repair is going to be made when you have a dysfunctional component. So the HVAC system has now gone down. The appliances have now gone down. The carpet is torn up some sort of dysfunctional system, it's not working anymore. That's what a repair is. And then a capital improvement is going to be we're materially improving a unit of property. And the IRS defines nine different units of property. But as an example, we have a structure unit of property, which is the building, the windows, the doors. We have an HVAC unit of property, an electrical system unit of property. So we have all these different units of property. But an improvement is materially improving that unit of property. So something like replacing the HVAC unit, 
that is a material improvement, generally speaking, to the HVAC system or the HVAC unit of property. Putting windows on a single family home or single family rental, that is a material improvement to the building unit of property, which is a capital improvement and then depreciated over that 27 and a half year period. Wouldn't that IRS regulation or rule of the two per year, wouldn't that fall under repairs, not so much maintenance? And the reason I ask that is because it's my understanding that maintenance has more to do with things like lawn care, snow removal, things that have to be done on a regular basis, but it's not technically repairing the property and nor is it adding value to the property. So it's not a capital expense. So yes, this is something that a lot of clients think. And from a practical perspective, you're right. Yeah, it's definitely considered a repair. You mean maintenance? Yeah, yeah. Most maintenance expenses are definitely going to be considered repairs, not maintenance, right? Maintenance is going to be the snow removal, the lawn care, things like that. But from a technical perspective, if we are classifying different repair items as maintenance, then what we get is the ability to use the maintenance safe harbor at a future point in time. So let's say that you go and you repair, right? We're just going to call it repair. You repair the HVAC system. You have a maintenance tech come out. He comes out, he looks at it, and he says, hey, these five things on the HVAC system need to be repaired. So a normal person would say, oh, these are repairs, but we would want to actually classify that as maintenance because it resulted as that maintenance call or a result of the maintenance call when the HVAC tech came out to take a look at it. The reason we want to do that is because we can then classify those repairs under the maintenance safe harbor rule which allows us to deduct them in totality without regard to cost. So there is a little bit of technical difference, but from a practical perspective, you're totally right. A repair is a repair. Maintenance is going to be snow removal, lawn care, that type of thing. And so if you deduct them that way, you're saying you could write it off in the same year, but if you take them as a repair, it would have to be amortized or depreciated over time? Oh, no. So, okay. So a maintenance item is still going to be deductible in the first year. A repair item is going to be deductible in the first year. Okay. I guess the difference would be, let's say on the HVAC system, the motor in the HVAC unit went out. Uh But we found that the motor was about to go out due to preventative maintenance that we had conducted on the HVAC system. Once that motor goes out, if we had that preventative maintenance, we can classify the repair as maintenance under the maintenance safe harbor. Even if the motor costs $10,000, which I know is absurd for an HVAC unit, but just go with me here. Mm -hmm. If we didn't have that preventative maintenance, then we have to classify that $10,000 motor as a capital improvement. And it would then be depreciated over 27 and a half years. So that's the difference. It's purely semantics. So from a tax perspective, is it the same or is it just a matter of you being able to write it off all in one year? From a tax perspective, if we are able to classify it under the maintenance safe harbor, then we get to write it off in the current year. Okay. If we can't classify it under the maintenance safe harbor, then we have to depreciate it over 27 and a half years. Got it. See, this is why I don't like taxes. <laughs> it, there's never a simple answer. <laughs> so that's why we have guys like you. All right. So now that's a little more clear to me, but I, I wanted to clarify maintenance repairs and capital expenses for people there. So I think that's as clear as mud now. <laughs> All right. So Let's talk about depreciation for a moment. I think most people listening here understand depreciation and with residential investment property, you can depreciate the improvements above the ground. In other words, not the dirt, but the improvements for 27.5 years. I've heard some people say that, or even ask the question, you know, should I depreciate the property? I'm not even sure if this is an option or a choice, but what do you say to people who ask you if they can or should depreciate their property? Yeah, so we actually get this question a lot from new investors or from investors that have gone to like one of those guru seminars 
which nothing against those. Those can yield a lot of information, but we find that sometimes they produce wrong information. One of those points is depreciation. So some people will tell you that you do not have to depreciate your rental property, which is not true. You absolutely always have to depreciate your rental property. The reason that you have to depreciate it is because when you sell that property at the end of the hold period or whenever you get tired of holding on to it, you sell that property, you have to pay something called depreciation recapture taxes. And it's generally going to be in an amount of 25%. And it's going to be based on how much depreciation you've taken or how much depreciation you could have taken. And that latter part that could have taken, that really can trip a lot of people up if they didn't take depreciation for whatever reason. Maybe they don't want to pay those depreciation recapture taxes whenever they sell but the IRS is going to tax you as if you took depreciation, even if you didn't. So that's why we say you might as well go ahead and take it now. You might as well benefit from it now. And we can generate passive losses to offset other income sources. But yeah, definitely have to take it regardless of who tells you that you don't have to take it. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So advice there is just take it because you really don't have a choice. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So the next thing really won't apply to everyone, unfortunately. But the holy grail for real estate investors is this designation or classification as a real estate professional. And we could probably take an entire episode on this topic. Let's start off by just explaining what this real estate professional designation is and why it's, in my opinion, considered the holy grail for real estate investors. Yeah, yeah, it is the holy grail. So let's first actually explain what it's not. It's not a title that you put on LinkedIn, right? It's not <laughs> something that you can get a license, like a real estate license, and then call yourself a real estate professional. A lot of people get that confused too. And it's always, for me as a tax advisor, it's funny because people are like, well, if I put that I'm a real estate professional on LinkedIn, that counts, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it does not. So think of this as purely a tax election, which it is, but it's just purely something that the IRS has said, hey, here are rules that you can, if you meet these rules, you will be able to elect to be qualified or classified as a real estate professional for tax purposes only. What you have to do is first you have to qualify as a real estate professional and that's twofold. You have to work 750 hours in real estate. It doesn't matter what you're doing in real estate. You can be leasing, selling, managing contractors, managing a construction property, renting out your properties. It just has to be real estate related activities. So we have to spend 750 hours in those real estate related activities. And the second part of that is that we have to spend greater than half of our time in real estate activities, in those real estate activities. So the greater than half your time rule pretty much automatically throws you out if you have a full-time job because you're going to be working in that full-time job for 2,080 hours. And I don't know about you, but working in an additional 2,081 hours on real estate would be really hard to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and your weekends would be very boring at that point. You just don't sleep. Uh, yeah, yeah. No sleeping at all. So anyway, so if you can hit the 750 hours and the greater than half your time, then you are qualified as a real estate professional. But there's a second part to this. So generally, people want to qualify as a real estate professional so that they can deduct their passive losses, irregardless of how much income they earn from other sources. So we often see real estate professionals as the spouses of the people that are earning a high amount of income. So let's say that you have a breadwinner earning $300,000 a year. That person can't be a real estate professional, but their spouse can be qualified as a real estate professional, assuming that they meet those criteria. The benefit is that the passive losses generated from their rental real estate portfolio can then offset the $300,000 income from the other spouse. 
If you don't qualify as a real estate professional, that same $300,000 household would not be able to deduct any of their passive losses unless they also had passive income, which with rental real estate, is it could be the case, but it's generally not the case. So going back to the real estate professional, 750 hours, greater than half your time. That's step one. Step two is showing or demonstrating that you have materially participated in your rental real estate activities. And generally, material participation is showing that you have worked 500 hours in your rental real estate activities. So you could be a real estate agent and only do real estate agent things like leasing, buying, selling, and earning commission income. And that you would be qualified as a real estate professional. However, if you don't participate in your rental real estate activities for 500 hours, then you would not be considered to be materially participating. Thus, you would not be able to actually deduct your passive losses against your ordinary income. So two steps, real estate professional, then material participation. If you can hit both of those steps, you qualify as a full-blown real estate professional and you can deduct all your passive losses against your other ordinary income without any limits on that passive losses or without any limits on the passive losses. So in order to qualify time-wise, does does that have to include property management, direct property management? Because most investors I know, including myself, don't actually manage the properties. We have professional property management companies doing that for us. So we could be, quote unquote, managing the manager, which is not a time consuming task by any stretch. But does that need to include property management or can it be made up of anything that's related to managing those properties or managing your real estate business outside of property management? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. So The way that it works is the 500 hours, we can aggregate all properties together and we can spend 500 hours on the portfolio rather than 500 hours on each rental. And we do that a lot. It's called a grouping election. But you still have to demonstrate that you spent 500 hours managing the portfolio. So the question would be, Marco, if you have 10 rental properties and you have a property management firm managing all 10 of those rental properties, how much time are you really spending working on that rental portfolio? And you might be able to justify 500 hours. But the IRS is going to fight pretty hard and say, no, you're definitely completing investor activities here. The property manager is the one that's materially participating and you're just kind of sitting here collecting checks and collecting the financial statements on an ongoing basis. And that would be hard for a CPA to come in and say, no, no, he's definitely a real estate professional. So if you are going to have professional property management or even, I guess, not professional property management, it makes it much harder to justify material participation, that 500 hour rule unless you have a really large portfolio, right? I mean, we've got guys that own hundreds of units. Well, those guys are real estate professionals, even though they don't actively manage the properties themselves. They have professional teams in place, but they just spend so much time on the portfolio that, I mean, it's very easy to argue that they're a real estate professional. I would assume it's easier to qualify for this if you're an active real estate investor, meaning that you are fixing, flipping, rehabbing. You're involved in a more, a deeper capacity. Yeah, you mean if they go and they fix up their rental and then rent it out? Well, no, if if they're like flippers, they're rehabbers and flippers. In other words, this doesn't apply only to passive real estate investors, people who just hold a portfolio and do other things. Right. So let's put it this way. It's probably a lot easier to qualify for this if you're both an active and a passive real estate investor, meaning that you've got your passive portfolio, but you're also actively involved in finding deals, fixing them up, you know, managing contractors, all that stuff related to fixing, flipping or fixing finding, fixing, and buying property. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If, if real estate is your job, right? Well, job's a bad word. If real estate is your business, that's your primary source of income, 
it's going to be pretty easy to qualify you as a real estate professional. Now, that said, just because we qualify you as a real estate professional, we still have to hit that second step of material participation in your rental activities, right? Mm-hmm. So we can have a flipper that does 100 deals a year, but he's got three rental properties that are managed by a professional property management company. Well, that guy, it would be difficult to say he spent 500 hours managing his three rental properties when he has a property manager doing it for him. Thus, if we don't hit that material participation threshold, we wouldn't be able to take those passive losses. So with our active guys, with our guys that do real estate as their main source of income, it's just all about structuring. How do we structure the facts and circumstances to yield the real estate investor or the real estate professional status? What are the pitfalls with this? The one pitfall is if you group your rental properties. So so let me explain the groupings. Going back to that material participation, let's say you have 10 rental properties. Well, the material participation rule says you need to spend 500 hours in each rental activity, which means that if you have 10 rental properties, you have to spend 5,000 hours on your portfolio in order to justify that you materially participated. So what we do instead is we group those 10 properties into one rental activity, meaning that we can now spend 500 hours on all 10 properties combined and will be considered materially participating in the portfolio. The pitfall there is that if you were to sell one of those properties, you are theoretically selling 10% of the entire portfolio and 10% is not a material portion of the portfolio. And what that then leads to is the fact that if you do have suspended passive losses, you can't use them because you did not liquidate a material portion of your rental activity. Instead, you only sold 10% of it. So that's the number one pitfall to the real estate professional election and the grouping election. But other than that, there's not really a pitfall to it. You just need to make sure that your documentation is in place. The IRS will go back a couple of years and see if the facts and circumstances were the same and you just didn't record or for whatever reason didn't elect a real estate professional status. It is an annual election, but yeah, the pitfalls really kind of revolve around the grouping that I just talked about and then documentation. Okay. Well, I mean, the reason we're talking about this is tied to our theme of sheltering your rental income from taxes. So we might have glossed over this, but why would someone want to be a real estate professional? I mean, what is the key benefit of having that designation with the IRS? Yeah. So the key benefit to being a real estate professional is that you do not have any limits on the passive losses that you're allowed to take. So when you buy rental real estate, if you structure your facts correctly and you structure your work correctly in terms of like rehab and repairs, you can pretty much end up with a passive loss every single year until you sell the property. And those passive losses can be very valuable if you can take the passive losses currently against your ordinary income. Without a real estate professional election, you cannot take the passive losses against your ordinary income unless you are earning less than $150,000. So between $100,000 and $150,000, there's a $25,000 passive allowance that gets phased out. And it's completely phased out when you earn $150,001. You can no longer take any passive losses. So the idea is that you become a real estate professional and therefore you no longer have any limit on the amount of income that you can earn and the amount of passive losses that you can take. So going back to that example where I was saying one spouse might be earning $300,000, we'll say that they generate 50K in passive losses every year. If the other spouse is working or doesn't want to qualify as a real estate professional, then what's gonna happen is that 50K in passive losses is going to be suspended and it's going to be carried forward until it can be used by offsetting rental income or passive income. 
And what we see happen is these folks that do earn a lot of income, like that 250, 300, 400 range, they generate tons of passive losses. We've had guys with $400,000 of passive losses that have been suspended because they don't have anybody that can qualify as a real estate professional. So the idea is to qualify as a real estate professional and take that 50K of passive losses that you're generating annually, take that in the current year, offset your 300K of income, and you don't have to worry about any sort of limits on the amount of passive losses that you can take. Right. Okay. Well, that's why it's the holy grail because it just there's no cap to the passive losses that you can take in a year against your ordinary income, which greatly reduces your taxable income. Oh, absolutely. We've had guys get high, high, high five-figure refunds once they go the real estate professional route. Wow. Yeah, it's a little complicated to understand and wrap your head around if you've never heard this before or you don't understand this real estate professional designation or election, but it might be a little bit beyond the scope of this particular episode, but people can always contact you and we'll get to that at the end of the uh, at the end of the show here. But just speaking of suspended passive losses, those passive losses that people can't take. So let's say there's people listening to this and they do not qualify for real estate professional status, which I would assume is a lot of people, probably the majority. If they have suspended losses or suspended passive losses, how can they tap into that without qualifying as a real estate professional? Or is that even possible? It is possible. It takes a little bit of creativity, but it is definitely possible. So one of the two things that I generally tell clients about are, well, sorry, three things. So there's three ways, easy, well, relatively easy ways. Even I think it's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the easiest way to tap into the passive losses is to sell your property. If you sell your property, you unlock all of your passive losses and you can unlock passive lot suspended passive losses and you can unlock suspended passive losses from other rental properties. So let's say I have four rental properties. They are all producing passive losses. I sell one for a $100,000 gain. That property that I sold throughout the hold period generated 20K of passive losses. My other three properties throughout their hold periods have generated $30,000 of passive losses. So combined, I have 50K of those that have been suspended. Well, I can use the entire 50K to offset my 100K gain. That's the easiest way to unlock suspended passive losses is just liquidate a property that has a nice gain built in. The second way is to buy better properties, <laughs> which is easier said than done. But if you buy properties that are cash flowing better, then you won't have passive losses that then become suspended because you'll be producing higher cash flow, you'll be producing net income. The key is getting over the net income after depreciation and amortization, which can be very difficult to do, especially if you have a property with a high basis that has a nice depreciation write-off every year. And then, of course, the con to this is that after you've used all of your suspended passive losses, you now have real estate that's generating taxable income because we don't have enough write-offs anymore to shelter it. So that could come back to bite you, but picking up better real estate is generally a good way to go. The third item, which is or the third way to do it, is a little bit more I guess creative, some of our clients call it the sexier method, is to invest in businesses that are generating passive income. You would invest as an equity holder, not a debt holder. And as a result, your investment would generate a portion of the net income from the business will be paid out to you. So your investment is going to be generating passive income. That passive income can be offset by your suspended passive losses from the rental real estate. Okay. So you just need another asset class in order to apply those passive losses too. 
Yeah, yeah. Like I tell our clients too, don't get don't get too spun up if you have passive losses that are being suspended. It's really not the end of the world. We kind of get a little concerned when we see $50,000 of suspended passive losses that have accumulated over a period of maybe 3 to 5 years. Sure. If you've like bought say you buy a, an apartment building and as a result of everything that you've done, you generate 50k in passive losses in the first year. That I wouldn't be too worried about because that apartment building might actually be generating passive income, passive taxable income, even after depreciation in future years. And it's going to just eat up its own suspended passive losses. So we like to kind of dig into the more creative routes or options whenever we see 50K of suspended passive losses being generated over a good period of time. But if it's been generated over a short period of time or you have less than that, I really wouldn't worry too much about it. Okay. We could go on and on about this topic. So let's just move forward here. Just quickly to touch on this, I'm wanting you to explain why multi-unit properties like duplexes and even fourplexes are more tax advantaged, if that's the right word, than single family detached homes. A lot of people just don't know this or think about this. Sure. So... A multifamily property is going to be broken up into multiple units. Obviously, that's why it's called a multifamily. But the key is that when you make repairs to a multifamily property, you're generally making repairs to a unit. And then that unit or or the repair is compared to the property as a whole. So for instance, let's say that you put in new flooring and let's say you have a four unit. So we put in new flooring in one of the units. In the unit itself, we only covered 50% of the floor. Actually, let's just make it simple. Let's just say that we replaced all the floors in one unit. Well, that is theoretically 25%. We replaced 25% of the floors in the entire property, right? Because we have a four-unit property. So if we've done, if we've repaired 25% of the floors in the entire property, an argument could be made that that might not be a material improvement to the building structure. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you have a single-family property and you replace all of the floors in that single family property, you've now replaced 100% of the floors, meaning that you have materially improved the building structure. There's not really an argument there. So the multi-units, it allows us to jump into the gray of playing with what is a material improvement to the unit of property being affected. Before we started, we were talking about HVAC systems. Same thing, if you have a four unit property, you have four HVACs and you have four systems of ductwork. Well, the ductwork and the HVACs, they all make up that property's HVAC system. If you replace one HVAC unit, again, theoretically, you're replacing maybe 22 to 23% of the HVAC system. Is that a material improvement to the HVAC system? That would be the question you have to answer. If it's not a material improvement, then we get to expense that replacement cost. If it is a material improvement, then we have to capitalize it. So on a single family home, We have one HVAC unit. We replace that HVAC unit. We've materially improved the HVAC system, and we have to capitalize and depreciate. So it's the difference between a capital expenditure that you depreciate over time versus taking the entire expense in one year, first year. Yes, yes. And let me explain why that's extremely important to understand. So a dollar today is worth a dollar. A dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow, right? Right. We want to get our savings as quickly as we possibly can, and we want to reinvest that capital in different opportunities, whether it be real estate or not. If we have to depreciate that, that tax savings, theoretically, or if we have to collect that tax savings over a period of 27 and a half years, we've really shot ourselves in the foot in terms of an economic perspective. The other big con to depreciation is going all the way back to what we were talking about earlier. When you sell a property, you have to pay a 25% tax on your depreciation. 
generally it's 25%. If you're in a 10% tax bracket or a 15% tax bracket, you pay 10 and 15%. But for most people, we're paying a 25% recapture tax on the depreciation we've taken. So if I have the option to write off $10,000 this year and save 3,000 bucks, or write off $10,000, or sorry, capitalize $10,000 and get that $3,000 tax savings over 27 and a half years. And then whenever I sell it, I then get taxed on the $10,000 of depreciation. I'm going to try to write off as much as I can. Right. Yeah, that can add up to be a lot. So that makes complete sense. Okay, good. So in wrapping up here, just I have a couple last things. Sometimes people want or need to sell their property and make the case that you should never sell. I mean, you can move your equity and maintain your portfolio, but not sell for the sake of selling. But there are several techniques here. You could do a 1031 exchange, which is a tax-deferred exchange. There's all kinds of other techniques that you talk about. So how do you reduce your taxes when you sell if you need to sell? And, and I guess there's different assumptions that need to be made here, You know, whether the sale is a 1031 exchange or you're flat out just selling it and, and moving off and doing something else. Yeah, yeah. Well, first, you should really understand what your goals are. If you want to get out of real estate, we don't recommend, obviously, 1031-ing because you'll be right back into real estate. If you want to get out of real estate, we recommend owner financing. And with owner financing, you get to spread the recognition of capital gains out over the period of the note that you're holding. Mm -hmm. And just in case somebody doesn't know what owner financing is, it's like if Marco sells me a property and then Marco takes back the note rather than me going to a bank, that Marco is then owner financing the property and he gets to recognize the capital gain on the property that he sold me over a period of time rather than all up front, which can be very beneficial, especially with all the extra things that we have in a day's tax code, like the net investment income tax and all that great stuff. So if you want to get out of real estate, owner financing is a good way to go potentially. If you want to stay in real estate, which is most of our clients, you want to look at how can you liquidate? What are your options for liquidation and what's the tax impact going to be? So the first thing that we look at is do you have suspended passive losses? So going back all the way to that conversation, (laughs) if you have suspended passive losses, you might not have to do a 1031 exchange because after your suspended passive losses offset the gain that you have, you might not have that much of a taxable gain left. And if that's going to be the case, then we don't want to jump through the hoops of a 1031 exchange. We should just liquidate and call it a day. So that's the very first thing that we look at is what are your passive losses and can we potentially tap into those? The next thing is is looking at a 1031 exchange. And a 1031 exchange just means that we are rolling the gain on today's property that we're selling. We're rolling all of that into the next property. 1031 exchanges are good. However, what people tend to forget is that your basis is going to remain the same when you roll it into the next property, unless you put more money into it or unless your mortgage notes are drastically different. Your basis is going to remain relatively the same. And what this means is that Like, let's say you start off with a $100,000 property and you 1031 that into a $200,000 property. And then you 1031 that into a $500,000 property. And then you 1031 that into a million dollar property. Well, now you have a million dollar property producing cash flow that a million dollar property produces, but you have a basis of $100,000, that original property that you purchased. What this means is that your depreciation is so low that you're going to be crushed with taxes. So we actually talk about in a 1031 exchange, one of the big cons is the fact that your basis erodes over time just because you're not adding 
again, going back to that example, we don't have a, a million dollar property with a million dollar basis. It's a million dollar property with a hundred K basis. So we do push 1031 exchanges. You can save a ton of money with them, but we have to be very cognizant of what happens to our basis over time. And then one more option would be instead of doing a 1031 exchange, we liquidate and then we buy a property, maybe an apartment complex, and we do a cost segregation study. And a cost segregation study just increases your depreciation that you write off every year for the first five years. So we could theoretically boost our depreciation to help offset some of the gains. This sounds like it's a bit of an eye opener for some people who are doing a 1031 exchange or thinking about doing a 1031 exchange. I would imagine that the right decision is to compare what would happen if I did do a 1031 exchange versus looking at suspended passive losses or other strategies. I would assume there's probably some other strategies here. But to do that, I guess someone would need to talk to their tax advisor or someone like you and then compare scenario A to scenario B to scenario C. Is that the process you would take them through? Oh, yeah, yeah. When And we, we do it all the time. We actually love it because what some people don't realize is that you can actually take cash out during a 1031 exchange if you structure it correctly. And if you have suspended passive losses, then we can take just that amount of cash out. So say you have $20,000 of suspended passive losses and you're 1031ing a 200K property. Well, if we structure it right, you can take 20K out of that 1031 exchange and not pay any taxes on it. So you can definitely get pretty creative with uh, with 1031 exchanges. It's, it's not as cut and dry as people write about. And if your tax advisor does think it's cut and dry, I'd recommend maybe getting a second opinion because you can definitely, like I said, get really creative with how we structure these. Yeah, for sure. And this can get a little bit more in depth. It doesn't need to be complicated, but we do quite a few 1031 exchanges. We're not an accommodator. We don't do the 1031s, but we have clients that are doing 1031 exchanges. So for those of you listening, if you've got questions about that, contact your investment counselor here to discuss that. And then for a deeper conversation, either reach out to your tax advisor or give Brandon a call and get into that conversation because you don't want to jump the gun and make a decision that is an advantage for you, but there's a better way to do it. So consider your options before you actually make that decision. Brandon, let's wrap up with a couple of quick questions here. Some people might laugh at these, but I'm going to call them miscellaneous tax tips. Can someone write off a firearm? <laughs> uh, yeah, no. We actually get this question a lot. Actually, <laughs> there, was, there was one time where I was like, maybe, but the other instances, generally no. So in order to write anything off, the expense needs to be ordinary and necessary. Now, if you're a real estate agent and you're in Detroit, no offense to those guys, you might say, <laughs> hey, a firearm is necessary. But then the IRS is going to say, yeah, but is it ordinary for real estate agents to have a firearm? And the answer is generally going to be no. So I'm going to go with no. Okay. What about travel? A lot of people travel for their business, especially our clients who are out of state investors. So they may live in California or New York, an expensive market, but they have properties throughout the Midwest, down through Texas, out towards the Southeast, and they travel from time to time. Is that a write-off? Oh man, we could have another podcast just on travel. Uh, <laughs> okay. Maybe we will. It, yeah. It's, uh, it can get really, really crazy. So at a high level, yes, you can write off travel, but you need to have a rental property or a business relationship in the area that you're traveling to. And I guess the example that I give is if the IRS didn't have this rule, you could take trips as many times as you wanted during the year to Hawaii, the Virgin Isles, the Caribbean, wherever you wanted to go. And you could say, oh, yeah, this was a business trip, right? So the idea is that, no, it's not a business trip unless you have a rental property there, unless you have prior business relationships there and it actually justifies a trip. Is that the litmus test or the rule of thumb? 
That's the rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so we actually we get a lot of clients that a lot of new clients too that say, hey, I uh, I went to Hawaii for a vacation and I went and looked at a couple of rental properties. So I'm going to include that those travel expenses. We say, no, no, you're not. <laughs> okay. Or if you want to, we're not doing them. We're not writing them off for you. So. <laughs> so it sounds like shopping is, doesn't qualify, but shopping that leads to a purchase could. Shopping that leads to a purchase could, even if you buy the property like a couple of years later. So that same person that travels to okay. Hawaii that doesn't buy anything, they should keep track of those expenses because if they do buy something in the future, then they can add those costs to the basis of the property. Okay. Interesting. Good stuff. Brandon, you're a wealth of knowledge and you're right. You know, some of these topics could be episodes on their own. So we may have to just do another episode in the future focused on one of these topics that are pretty in-depth. In the meantime, I want to thank you for your time and do me a favor, tell our listeners how they can find you and or get more information about you. Yeah, appreciate it, Marco. And I guess before I do that, I just want to apologize for the background noise. In true real estate CPA fashion, we are getting our house rehabbed right now. So <laughs> okay. You might hear saws and hammering and everything like that. But anybody can find me at www.therealestatecpa.com. You can contact me there and set up a consultation if you're interested in hearing more about what we have to do. I also run my own podcast there and have a pretty extensive blog. And then you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I like to kind of like to talk about the flaws of the corporate world on LinkedIn, tend to get a lot of good feedback there. So some people really like connecting with me on LinkedIn, but any one of those methods works. So the realestatecpa.com? The realestatecpa.com. Okay, I'll put that in the show notes and make sure that people reach out. We'll let our investment counselors know about that as well. So we'll make sure that you get some questions directed your way. Brandon, really appreciate your time today and thank you for everything you've offered. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate you inviting me on. So there you have it. And who said that taxes weren't fun? So I hope this was educational and helpful. If some of it was over your head, by all means, reach out to Brandon or give your investment counselor a call and we can uh, help clarify some of this, at least hopefully. Anyway, if you haven't downloaded our free report, The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing, go ahead and do so. You can find it on both our websites. Just head over to PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com and you can uh, download that report from the link in the middle of the page. Of course, if you are actively looking for rental properties, by all means, we offer a free strategy session. Why not take advantage of it? Let's spend some time and talk about what your investment goals are and what you're trying to achieve, what you're thinking. We can help create a strategy and a plan around that for you and certainly help you build that real estate portfolio at whatever speed makes sense for you. If you have general questions about real estate investing, click the Ask Marco button on our Passive Real Estate Investing website, and I will cover those in an upcoming episode of Ask Marco. And of course, if you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever it may be, if you haven't done so already, remember to subscribe. And by all means, help us spread the good word. Help us share this content and this educational material with other people, friends, family, colleagues, and others who just simply don't know it exists. And you can do that by going to iTunes and leaving us a rating and review. And if you do that, go ahead and send an email to reviews at noradarealestate.com, reviews at noradarealestate.com. And I will have my team mail out Keep Calm and Invest On coffee mug. So that's just my thank you for you taking the time to go to iTunes and posting a review and leaving us a rating there. I think that covers it. Again, don't forget our upcoming Memphis Investment and Property Tour. It's coming up in two weeks. So if you haven't done that already, by all means, reach out to our team here and just let us know that you're interested. We'll uh, send you the information and give you the code 
to get your free ticket. It's normally $450 for that two-day event, and we are giving those out for free. So by all means, let us know. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights in media interviews, please contact the host.